Almighty God, today I want to thank you and praise you for your word, for the expression of your mind through Christ, through the printed pages of the Bible, through the spirit-led hearts and minds of your people, through the traditions that have withstood the test of time because they are based in truth. We thank you for your word that is proclaimed in the way we live, in the way we love one another, in the way we reorder our lives so that our top priority is you. Oh Lord, as we enter this next part of our worship this morning, we ask that your word would be transmitted from the pulpit in a way that honors and glorifies you, but most of all communicates your mind to your people. We know, Lord, that even as Bob has indicated that he's not feeling too well today, that many come here with ailments, with sickness, with pain. They come with anxiety about the workplace, anxiety about their families' lives, anxiety about social problems. They come with a lot of baggage. And so, Lord, in order that we might hear your word more completely, we ask that you would empower us as we imagine ourselves putting all of that on the altar and leaving it there. And then laying ourselves open to receive what you would send to us in the form of grace and truth in love. So that we might not have room left in us to hold those things again, that we might remember that we are now and always your children through Christ and that our burdens have been given to the one who carries our yoke for us and transfers his yoke upon us. Oh, God, have mercy on us as we pray, even as we say the words that Jesus taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the power, the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. You know, that is such a familiar prayer to me that for a long time I kept it written down on the pulpit because I was so familiar with it that I would mess it up while I was saying it from my head because I was already thinking about the next thing. <laughs> so I'm flying without a net. That happens. So we're, we started last week a series of messages about having a 2020 vision, uh, Christian vision for the coming year. And, and I admitted that I'm not ashamed of the fact that I'm doing like everybody else in, uh, in, in the, the Western world today, taking advantage of that whole 2020 imagery for 2020 vision. And, and, uh, but to have 2020 vision, as you remember from last week, you are born with incomplete Christian vision, and so it takes corrective devices to help you get 2020 Christian vision. So nobody's born with 2020 Christian vision. You've got to, you've got to do the things and receive the things that correct your vision. And that's what we're going to do again today. I thought that since we were talking about Bibles, it would be a great idea to do a little Bible study. So this week's message is different. 
my sermon notes are literally annotations that I've added to the uh, study guide that I produce each week. So let me re remind you that there are a complete set of study guides for the next several weeks, months really, of services that are designed to go along with the sermons. And you can take the study guide by picking it up at the uh, entryway out there in a, a paper form in the, the uh, container that's got the sermon notes and prayer lists and so forth. You have it on your Shiloh app right now. You could follow along with me if you have your Shiloh app. You receive an email from me each Friday that contains links that take you directly to the uh, sermon notes and the study guides and your Sunday school teachers or, or key leaders in your Sunday school classes have been given access to the entire file and uh, if you ever wanted all of that all you'd have to do is let me know and I'll send you the link but the study guides are an expression of my process if you wonder what it's like to put together a sermon, well, because I believe so much in the fact that all good preaching is rooted in Scripture and that it is strengthened by Scripture and that the Bible is the best interpreter of the Bible, then you can see how I come about the conclusions that I make if you study the study guide because that's what I do is I write the process out for you in the form of an outline. And so we're going to walk through this week's process together. So let us begin by reading Psalm 37. Psalm 37 is on page 550 in your pew Bible. Here's an opportunity to reiterate how I feel about Bibles in churches. I go so far as to uh, make sure that we have large print Bibles in the pews and that they are numbered consecutively from page one all the way to the end because I want you to learn how to drive this thing. Sometimes people say to me, why don't you put the scripture on the screen? And there's a really simple reason. Because I want you to learn how to pick one of these up, open it, and drive through it like you're familiar with it. And to familiarize you with Scripture, I invite you to pull those Bibles out and go to the page number because sometimes it's embarrassing when somebody says, I want you to pick up the Bible and find the book of Habakkuk. How many of you could put your finger on that right now? <laughs> but if I give you a page number, then it's not so bad. So let's read together Psalm 37, Dan. You just dialed up 77. Wouldn't that be funny? Psalm 37, he will not forsake his saints, a psalm of David, fret not yourself because of evildoers, be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and winter like the green herb, wither like the green herb. <laughs> Trust in the Lord and do good, dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger. And, wrath, and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. 
In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. The wicked plots against the righteous and, uh, and the wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him. But the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. The wicked draw the sword and bend their bows to bring down the poor and needy, to slay those whose way is upright. Their sword shall enter their own heart, and their bows shall be broken. Better is the little that the righteous has than the abundance of the many wicked, for the arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. The Lord knows the days of the blameless and their heritage will remain forever. They are not put to shame in evil times. In the days of famine, they have abundance, but the wicked will perish. The enemies of the Lord are like the glory of the pastures. They vanish like smoke. They vanish away. I'm going to stop there. You should read the whole thing. It's absolutely gorgeous. But for the benefit of our time, I'm, I'm going to stop there because I think we have enough to see the point. So in the study guide, there are always a couple of questions, one question, maybe two questions that are meant for family discussion. At the top of each study guide, there's a question that you could ask at your Sunday dinner table or any time during the week and you could reflect on it with your children. So if you have children here who participate in other activities in the life of the church, then they may have already heard some things that are related to the message, and so they're prompted and prepared to hear this from you because what's more important than what we do here on Sunday morning is what you do with what we do here on Sunday morning in your homes. Many of us find it easier to be a witness for Christ and a truth teller in love in the workplace than we do in our own house. But we must be willing to share the truth of Christ and the love of God for all people in our home first. Because your kids probably know more about how sincere you are in your faith than anybody else. They watch everything you do. And they don't miss much. And so the question is meant to help you guide the discussion with your kids, with your family, with your Sunday school class. And today's question is, is there anything in your life that seemed important to you once, but now it seems unimportant? And why did your attitude change? Well, here's my answer. When I was a child, growing up in western Pennsylvania, I was a huge Pittsburgh uh, Pirates fan. Almost said Steelers. I was that too. But I was a big time Pittsburgh Pirates baseball fan. And all my friends and I collected baseball cards. That's what you did. Now some of you can really relate to this. You know, you go to the drugstore or whatever and you buy as many of those packs as you had change in your pocket and you'd open it up right away, stuff that cardboard hard piece of gum in your mouth that really sugary, you know, you could break it and it would snap like a stick gum. We'd stick that in our mouths and if we bought five packs of, of uh, baseball cards, then we chewed five pieces of gum all at once. That's what you do. 
while you're riding your Stingray bicycle with its big sissy bar and its banana seat and its butterfly handlebars and you're chewing that gum, you know, and you're trying to talk to each other, but neither one of you can understand the other because it's and you're blowing bubbles and, and all the while you're talking about who you got in your baseball cards. And what I wanted more than anything, you know, was the complete roster of the Pittsburgh Pirates. And then, of course, I wanted to get as many of their seasons over the years as I could so that I would have a complete generational uh, uh, set. I had a little... I had a little like recipe box that my father gave me or my mother gave me, I don't remember, that had all my baseball cards in them and then eventually it just became my pirate's cards. And, and then one day, one day one of the kids in my neighborhood came cruising down the street. Uh, it's western Pennsylvania so it was really hilly and he cruises down the street and his bike is making this fabulous sound. It's going It turns out that he has taken a couple of his mother's clothespins and a couple of his baseball cards and he stuck them into the spokes of his bike so that as he's riding down the hill it's going all the way down and boy did we want to do that too. So I started with the American League cards because I didn't care about the American League. That was a real baseball. National League's where it was at. So all my American League cards eventually turned into motor sounds for my bike. Of course, when I ran out of those, because you know they don't last long when you run them through the spokes of your bike and you ride as much as I did, then I started getting into my National League cards because, well, you know, some of those teams I didn't care about. And I don't really know what happened to my baseball card collection because somewhere after all of that, I stopped caring about that. And sometimes I shudder to think of what some of those cards might be worth right now. I love the Pittsburgh Pirates and my favorite players were Willie Stargell and uh, Manny Sanguian and of course, Roberto Clemente. And I had all their cards. I had some really valuable cards, I have no doubt. I don't know where they are, whatever happened to them. I might have been able to sell one of those for hundreds of thousands of dollars and give 10% to the church, but instead it went in my bike. Psalm 37 is a psalm that has a heading on it in your Bible. When you read the Bible, if you still have it open, take a look. I always recommend to people when you do Bible study that you read everything on the page. You know, uh, back I used to do computer consulting years ago when it was fairly new and a lot of people didn't know how to work things and, and I could make a little extra money just by helping people figure things out on their computer, you know, like when to turn it off and turn it back on again. But I would always say to people, if they call me on the phone, have you read everything on the screen? You know, have you, have you read the entire page? Because somewhere on that page, it may be telling you exactly what you need to know, and you become fixated on the error message, or you become fixated on the problem. Protectors, law enforcement professionals will tell you, never get fixated on the problem. Keep your broad view so that you can absorb every piece of information that's in front of you. And this is the same way you should study the Bible. You are reading a particular passage because it called your attention to it, but are you reading the whole page? Are you reading the headings? Are you reading the footnotes that are provided to help you with your study? Did you know that there are many versions of the Bible and many translations of the Bible, but what's really amazing is Bible scholars will tell you that for some reason, really lousy translations and versions of the Bible have a tendency to die on the vine and they never become widely distributed. 
I'm personally convinced that that's because the Holy Spirit, the true author of Scripture, is determined to protect the integrity of God's character. And for that reason, really bad versions of Scripture have a tendency to never really proliferate. And yet, accountable, trustworthy versions tend to be widely available. And so, we could have an entire discussion someday about the different versions and the different translations and how they came to be, but I will be comfortable telling you, if you can trust me at my word as your pastor and your friend, I'm comfortable telling you that any widely distributed and pretty universally trusted variant of Scripture is approved by God because it's in your hand. And so when we read from this particular version that we have in our pews, you notice that right above the big number 37, it says, he will not forsake his saints. So a skilled and gifted scholar has interpreted this for you and given you a summary statement. Most Bibles, if you will open them and look at the very front, will show you in some place the process of editing and putting together this particular version or translation of Scripture. And you find that there are hundreds of editors, and most of them are renowned Bible scholars. And just like an encyclopedia, it's broken down into smaller pieces, and it's put together by these editors and these scholars so that it can, they can focus on a particular area and make sure that it is independently uh, made accurate and trustworthy. And then at the end, a panel of scholars will examine the entire document. This might take years in order to make sure that it's trustworthy. Now, the reason I'm sharing that with you is because if you read everything on the page, then you can assume that the people who put it there put it there for a reason. In the same way, I draw your attention to the sermon notes and to the, uh, the uh, study guide that I've created. I want you to read everything on the page because I put it there for a reason. I hope being led by the Holy Spirit that I gave you very specific instruction for a very specific purpose. But the reality is, is it's on the page because it should be. So these spirit-led scholars mean for you to know that Psalm 37 is primarily about how God will not forsake God's saints. So I read through the questions and I see that. That is what the heading says, so that tells me right off the bat the conclusion that I should probably come to as I've read that passage. Now note that Psalm 37, this is the sermon or the uh, study guide again. Psalm 37, like Psalms 33, 34, 35, and 36, is presenting a series of contrasts between righteousness and wickedness. The writer is wrestling with the struggles of the righteous person who are being afflicted by wickedness. So when you go out into the world, you hear and see all sorts of things that seem wrong to you. You know, the word wicked, as it's used in Scripture, would translate to twisted. You know, it's twisted. It, it's still sort of upright, but twisted. And so there's a lot of good people who do twisted things. And you encounter them in your life, and the contradiction is annoying and frustrating and, and a little bit maddening in a way because you just can't figure out how in the world this person could seem so with it in so many ways, and their behavior could seem so positive in so many ways, and yet there's this twisted aspect. 
And this is what wicked means. And so what, what we're noticing is, is that if we're going to study this passage and really comprehend what it's saying to us, we owe it to ourselves and to integrity, intellectual integrity, to read the surrounding passages, to read in context. There's one thing I really advise people against, and it's very common in the world of churches and Christian people, and that is to pick a single verse and focus on what it says without evaluating its place in context. You know, you can make the Bible say whatever you want it to. You can justify all sorts of wickedness by twisting the Bible using just a particular phrase in the Bible to your purposes. And so it's vital that you recognize as you're reading this psalm, for example, that in the psalms that precede it, there is a trend that the author is moving in uh, toward that tells us that, that during this particular time of writing, the author wants us to see the struggle between goodness and evil, between sort of uh, biblical sanity and the world's twisted, weird way of interpreting things. So not only should you read everything on the page, but you should go to the trouble of skimming and really reading and digesting all the related scripture around it. Uh, sometimes I, may, I will give a message that's focused on a particular passage, but if you notice, I always read to you front and back. I always read you many representations of that passage by, by separating it from, by not separating it from its context. I'm trying to give you the passage that I want to focus on within its context so that you're not tempted to think the Bible says, because it's more important that we know the character of God through Scripture than anything else. It's more important that we know in a personal way our Savior and Lord Jesus and experience the power of the Holy Spirit through reading Scripture. So, in my questions on the study guide, I, I uh, spend quite a bit of time focusing on that heading and what you should see there. And uh, believe it or not, I'm going to wrap up here real quick, but I just, as I go through the study guide, uh, the next question is, is, if you delight yourself in the Lord, what will the Lord do? What do, does it mean to delight yourself in the Lord? Okay. So there's a passage in here that says to you um, that you should delight yourself in the Lord and the Lord will give you your heart's desires. Well, once again, if I told you that the Bible said the Lord will give you your heart's desires, I'd be giving you an incomplete picture of what God is like, even though I'm quoting scripture. If you delight in the Lord, how does that shape your heart's desires. See, that's what this passage is saying to you. It's pretty apparent if you think about it. If you delight in the Lord, how does that shape your heart's desires? I mean, if my heart's desire is to have the latest model Cadillac every time they come out, then it may not have been shaped by my delight in the Lord, it may have been shaped by my delight in fabulous motor cars. Now, I'm not trying to criticize anybody for doing that. I'm just pointing that out as an example. Uh, if you were into collecting baseball cards like I was as a little kid, then you may be delighting in your, you know, one-upsmanship with your pals because you got a card they didn't get. I, it doesn't matter. The point that this is meant to give you is that you 
delight in the Lord and that shapes the things that your heart desires. And then you can be sure the Lord will give you what your heart desires. So you might say, well, the Lord doesn't give me what my heart desires. And the answer could very clearly be based on this passage, perhaps because you delight in things that are more important to you than the Lord. What gives you delight? What gives you joy? I was rejoicing last night and delighting in the Lord because I saw this beautiful spirit in our worship space that was being shared by people who are very different in a lot of ways, but united by the one Holy Spirit and the body of Christ. And it caused me to feel a great deal of joy, and I'm still wound up from it 12 hours later. So delight in the Lord, and He will give you your heart's desires. And then Remember that when you commit your way to the Lord and trust in Him, the Lord will deliver you all the things you seek. And imagine how your prayers change in this case. The things you ask God for are to bless your family so that they might serve Him as they grow in faith and spiritual maturity. You might ask the Lord to prosper your business so that you may give more of what you've worked hard to earn for His glory. You might ask the Lord to help you to find a more reliable vehicle for transportation because you need it in order to fulfill the purpose that He has put upon your life that might involve transportation. See, it's just a matter of reframing those things that seem important to you and seeing whether they fall into the category of this is meant to show my delight in the Lord. So as you read that passage, the thing you want to hear more plainly than ever is the Lord has a tremendous commitment to you. That the Lord is more committed to you most of the time than you are to the Lord. That the Lord saved you while you were yet sinners. And the Lord has made you part of his family even when you didn't deserve to be part of his family. The Lord has invited you to be a part of what the Lord is doing in the world. Even here in Jasper, here at Shiloh, despite the fact that you're not really deserving of that privilege, you get it because you have accepted that Christ is the one who redeemed you before the Lord Almighty. And it is Christ in you that compels you to do the things that glorify God. And that makes all the difference. And all that we can extract from one scripture reading. Can you imagine what you could do if you made a commitment to sharpening your 2020 Christian vision by reading scripture faithfully every day and using your critical thinking skills in the way that we've just kind of practiced in order to find truth in love from God that transforms your life and changes your heart's desires. Let us pray. Thank you, God, for your word. Burn it upon our hearts. Help us, Lord, to find the disciplines and the, use the resources that will help us to know you better through the many ways you express your word, chiefly through Scripture. May it be for all, all for your glory, we pray. Amen. Amen.